You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this week I'm pleased to share with you an excerpt from the audiobook The Rainbow Comes and Goes, written and read by Anderson Cooper and Gloria Vanderbilt. The Rainbow Comes and Goes is a touching conversation between a mother who at age 91 suffered a brief but serious illness and a son, a busy and successful journalist, who resolved to change their relationship by beginning a year-long conversation unlike any they had ever had before. The result is a conversation of surprising honesty and depth in which mother and son discuss their lives, the things that matter to them, and what they still want to learn about each other. Both Anderson Cooper and Gloria Vanderbilt live in New York City. Anderson Cooper is the anchor of Anderson Cooper 360 on CNN and a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes. He has won numerous journalism awards and nine Emmys, and his first book, Dispatches from the Edge was a number one New York Times bestseller. Gloria Vanderbilt is an American artist, writer, and designer. She is the author of eight books and has been a regular contributor to the New York Times, Vanity Fair, and Elle. Here now is an excerpt from The Rainbow Comes and Goes, written and read by Anderson Cooper and Gloria Vanderbilt. Introduction My mother comes from a vanished world a place and a time that no longer exist. I've always thought of her as a visitor stranded here, an emissary from a distant star that burned out long ago. Her name is Gloria Vanderbilt. When I was younger, I used to try to hide that fact, not because I was ashamed of her, far from it, but because I wanted people to get to know me before they learned that I was her son. Vanderbilt is a big name to carry, and I've always been glad I didn't have to. I like being a Cooper. It's less cumbersome less likely to produce an awkward pause in the conversation when I'm introduced. Let's face it, the name Vanderbilt has history, baggage. Even if you don't know the details of my mom's extraordinary story, her name comes with a whole set of expectations and assumptions about what she must be like. The reality of her life, however, is not what you'd imagine. My mom has been famous for longer than just about anyone else alive today. Her birth made headlines, and for better or worse, she's been in the public eye ever since. Her successes and failures have played out on a very brightly lit stage, and she's lived many different lives. She's been an actress, an artist, a designer, and a writer. She's made fortunes, lost them, and made them back again. She survived abuse, the loss of her parents, the death of a spouse, the suicide of a son, and countless other traumas and betrayals that might have defeated someone without her relentless determination. Though my mom is a survivor, she has none of the toughness that word usually carries with it. She's the strongest person I know, but tough she's not. She's never allowed herself to develop a protective layer of thick skin. She's chosen to remain vulnerable, open to new experiences and possibilities, and because of that, she's the most youthful person I know. My mom is now 92, but she's never looked her age, and she's rarely felt it either. People often say about someone that age, she's as sharp as ever, but my mom is actually sharper than ever. She sees her past in perspective. The little things that once seemed important to her no longer are. She has clarity about her life 
that I'm only beginning to have about mine. At the beginning of 2015, several weeks before her 91st birthday, my mother developed a respiratory infection she couldn't get rid of, and she became seriously ill for the first time in her life. She didn't tell me how bad she felt, but as I was boarding a plane to cover a story overseas, I called her to let her know I was leaving, waiting until the last minute as usual because I never want her to worry. When she picked up the phone, immediately I knew something was wrong. Her breath was short and she could barely speak. I wish I could tell you I canceled my trip and rushed to her side, but I didn't. I'm not sure if the idea she could be very ill even occurred to me, or perhaps it did. Acting on it would have been just too inconvenient, and I didn't want to think about it. I was heading off on an assignment, and my team was already in the air. It was too late to back out. Shortly after I left, she was rushed to the hospital, though I didn't find this out until I had returned, and by then she was already back home. For months afterward, she was plagued with asthma and a continued respiratory infection. At times, she was unsteady on her feet. The loss of agility was difficult for her, and there were many days when she didn't get out of bed. Several of her close friends had recently died. She was feeling her age for the first time. I'd like to have several more years left, she told me. There's still things I'd like to create, and I'm very curious to see how it all turns out. What's going to happen next? As her 91st birthday neared, I began to think about our relationship, the way it was when I was a child, and how it was now. I started to wonder if we were as close as we could be. The deaths of my father and brother had left us alone with each other, and we navigated the losses as best we could, each in our own way. My father died in 1978 when I was 10. My brother Carter killed himself in 1988 when I was 21. So my mom is the last person left from my immediate family, the last person alive who was close to me when I was a child. We've never had what would be described as a conventional relationship. My mom wasn't the kind of parent you'd go to for practical advice about school or work. What she does know about are hard-earned truths, the kind of things you discover only by living an epic life filled with love and loss, tragedies and triumphs, big dreams and deep heartaches. When I was growing up, though, my mom rarely talked about her life. Her past was always something of a mystery. Her parents and grandparents died before I was born, and I knew little about the tumultuous events of her childhood or of the years before she met my father, the events that shaped the person she'd become. Even as an adult, I found there was still much I didn't know about her, experiences she'd had, lessons she'd learned that she hadn't passed on. In many cases, it was because I hadn't asked. There was also much she didn't know about me, when we're young, we all waste so much time being reserved or embarrassed with our parents, resenting them or wishing they and we were entirely different people. This changes when we become adults, but we don't often explore new ways of talking and conversing, and we put off discussing complex issues or raising difficult questions. We think we'll do it one day, in the future, but life gets in the way, and then it's too late. I didn't want there to be anything left unsaid between my mother and me. So on her 91st birthday, I decided to start a new kind of conversation with her, a conversation about her life. Not the mundane details, but the things that really matter, her experiences that I didn't know about or fully understand. We started the conversation through email and continued it for most of the following year. My mom had only started to use email recently. At first, her notes were one or two lines long, but as she became more comfortable typing, she began sending me very detailed ones. 
As you'll hear in the sections ahead, her memories are remarkably intimate and deeply personal, revealing things to me she never said face to face. The first email she sent me was on the morning of her birthday. 91 years ago on this day I was born, I recall a note from my Aunt Gertrude received on a birthday long ago. Just think, today you are 17 whole years old, she wrote. Well, today I am 91 whole years old, a hell of a lot wiser, but somewhere still 17. What is the answer? What is the secret? Is there one? That email and its three questions started the conversation that ended up changing our relationship, bringing us closer than either of us had ever thought possible. It's the kind of conversation I think many parents and their grown children would like to have, and it's made this past year the most valuable of my life. By breaking down the walls of silence that existed between us, I've come to understand my mom and myself in ways I never imagined. I know now that it's never too late to change the relationship you have with someone important in your life, a parent, a child, a lover, a friend. All it takes is a willingness to be honest and to shed your old skin, to let go of the long-standing assumptions and slights you still cling to. I hope what follows will encourage you to think about your own relationships and perhaps help you start a new kind of conversation with someone you love. After all, if not now, when? One. A flashback this morning when I woke up. It's my 17th birthday, and I'm striding along Madison Avenue, hastening to meet my boyfriend. I knew the excitement, the anticipation that girl felt, and in knowing, I became, for an instant, 17 once again. But I am not 17. I am 91. No longer can I stride or hasten. I was unaware that if I lived long enough, there would come a time when this would be impossible. When I was 17, this never crossed my mind. Nor did it as the years passed and I got older. I was aware that old age happened, but to other people, not to me. Perhaps it's because, as a child, I did not have parents and siblings as most people do, and I didn't experience the circling spans of life and death. My first reaction upon reaching 91 is surprise. How did it happen so quickly? Am I ready for it? If I'm 91, it means my time on this earth is racing to the finish line. Will I have the power to complete the race with a badge of courage, leaving those I love with a memory of me that will sustain them and give them strength when I'm gone? Until I fell ill with influenza and asthma this year, I believed my best years were ahead. I'd been blessed with superb health all my life, so it was a shock to find myself suddenly on a stretcher in an ambulance, the sirens leading me to New York Hospital, where your father, Wyatt Cooper, was taken by ambulance 37 years ago, the hospital where he died. Before we go any further, I should probably fill you in a little on my mother's background so you can better understand some of the events she's referring to. Much of it's new to me as well, and I had to look it up in history books since she had never mentioned it. My mother was born Gloria Laura Vanderbilt in 1924 into a family of tremendous wealth. The first Vanderbilt to arrive in America was named Jan Artsen, 
He came to the Dutch settlement of New Amsterdam in 1650 as an indentured servant, hoping to escape a life of poverty in Europe. He settled on Staten Island, and that is where his descendants remained for nearly a century until Jan Artsen's great-great-great-grandson, Cornelius Vanderbilt, changed the family's fortunes forever. Cornelius dropped out of school when he was 11 and began working on his father's boat ferrying passengers and cargo between Staten Island and Manhattan. By 16, he was in business for himself, using a small two-masted schooner in the waters around Manhattan. Cornelius was a cunning businessman and eventually moved into the steamship business. He was frugal and restless, expanded his empire by buying real estate and later railroad lines, which he combined to create the New York Central Railroad. When he died in 1877, he'd amassed one of the greatest fortunes of his time, worth more than $100 million, which today would be equal to about $2 billion. My mother's father, Reginald Claypool Vanderbilt, was Cornelius's great-great-grandson. When he turned 21, he inherited millions of dollars from a family trust, but Reginald had none of Cornelius's work ethic. Reginald liked horses, gambling, and drinking. He died in 1925 of cirrhosis of the liver. He was just 45, and my mother was 15 months old. My grandmother, Gloria Morgan, was Reginald's second wife, having married him two years before his death. She was 18 when she gave birth to my mom and was completely unprepared to be a widow or a parent. Like many children born into wealthy families at that time, my mother was taken care of by a governess. Her name was Emma Kieslisch, but my mother called her Dodo. She was the most important person in my mother's young life. You don't grow up missing what you never had, but throughout life there is hovering over you an inescapable longing for something you never had. Susan Sontag As a child, you generally aren't aware that your family is different from any other. You have no frame of reference. It's only later that you learn your upbringing was not the same as everybody else's. My father died when I was 15 months old. I have no memory of him and never missed him until I came to know that it was unusual for a child not to have a father. He remains, as he always has been, a photograph in a picture frame. Growing up, I was passionately curious about him, but no one except Dodo ever mentioned his name. She told me he was a darling and that he loved horses. That was about it. Did he love me? I never dared ask, and she never said. Later, in my 20s, she handed me a sapphire ring, claiming that my father had given it to her when I was an infant, with the instructions, keep it and give it to Gloria when she grows up, because she's going to like jewelry. Well, he was right about that. I was thrilled. It was a message from him a long-awaited sign that he did love me. But the story seemed odd, unlikely somehow. When I finally took the ring to be insured, I was told it was not a real sapphire. My father was an alcoholic, perhaps in an expansive moment, inspired by the sentimental impulse of a cloudy fantasy, he had reached out to Dodo and given her the ring. But if so, where had it come from? I said nothing to Dodo. The ring may have been from my father. 
But it also may have been a kindly gesture on her part, a way to prove that I once had a father who cared about me. When your father and I were living in the house on 67th Street, shortly after you were born, we were robbed and the ring was stolen along with the rest of my jewelry. I never saw it again. Thank you for listening. The Rainbow Comes and Goes by Gloria Vanderbilt and Anderson Cooper is available wherever audiobooks, hardcovers, and ebooks are sold. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents. You can also like us on Facebook and ask a question via Facebook or Twitter. Enjoy your week, and we'll meet you back here next week. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.